Welcome back to the Mandarin Blueprint Podcast. My name is Phil Crimmins. Just got back from vacation traveling to Songpinggo, which is a region of Sichuan province in Abadou. Uh, so like the on a provincial level in China, you have, you know, so you have China and then you have provinces. Provinces are generally maybe a little bit bigger than a United States state. Uh, Sichuan is a like... Yeah, a big bit bigger than Texas, and Texas is, of course, you know, I think the second largest state in the U.S. And then within the provinces, you have sub-districts, and Chengdu is the main one in Sichuan, that being the city, but then you also have counties, and you have uh, kind of like what they'll call a zhou, which is in between province and county. So it's like a little bit bigger than a county, but smaller than a, than a province. And so Aba is a very beautiful place, has lots of big mountains, it has a lot of Qiangzu, which is the minority group there, and also some Zhangzu, which is Tibetan. Uh, so Qiangzu and Zhangzu have a very beautiful traditional clothing, and you'll see people around wearing it all the time, it's quite nice. Uh, every Qiangzu uh, person that I've met has been extraordinarily friendly, not surprising, Sichuan is such a friendly place. And this region also has very beautiful uh, lakes. So the most famous one is Jiujaigo, which has these super brilliant colored lakes where it's like turquoise and topaz and all of these oranges and yellows. And it's really quite breathtaking. But almost all the lakes in the general region are this deep turquoise color and it's quite awesome. So we enjoyed that and China has also just recently gotten rid of all of its medium or high risk areas for the pandemic. So, you know, they've been handling the pandemic well. So life is very normal uh, here at the moment. And we did have a few restrictions while traveling. I mean, when I say restrictions, I just mean we had to uh, show our health codes and, um, you know, we had to get a COVID-19 nucleic acid test and just show that we'd gotten it within the past seven days, seven days. But now that there are no medium to high risk areas, even that restriction won't be placed on travel. So within China, things are all right right now. And so we'll hopefully be able to see that continue uh, into the future. So that's good news from China uh, from inside. So just thought I would share that. Also, I went skiing for the first time and skiing for the first time. Uh, is the type of thing that is very memorable. And these are the types of things you want to look for when you're making your mnemonic scenes for your characters or you're learning a new vocabulary word. First time experiences tend to really stick with us. So I'd never been skiing before. And so I have a very detailed memory of all the things that were happening, especially because uh, I had to obviously think a lot, you know, as a how does my body go this way or that way? And then when I was finally getting the hang of it, the thrill of that. And then, of course, the times when I would fall just like sort of <laughs> really wiping out was quite interesting as well. And so whenever you're trying to find fodder for your mnemonics and to remember a Chinese word or really anything, going back to first time experiences of things is a good source. So you can just ask yourself, when was the first time that I did X? And it might be something you've done loads of times. I, you know, I played drums as a kid. When was the first time I played drums? What was my first drum lesson like? What was my first concert like? And all of these things can make a big difference in how you feel 
about that particular memory. So let's go into today's questions. If you're new to the Mandarin Bluebird podcast, we answer questions from the Mandarin Bluebird community forum, which is for members of the course, as well as comments that are left on specific lessons in the Mandarin Blueprint Method course. We also will answer emails that come in that are directed towards the podcast or otherwise have been uh, recommended to us to look into. And so that's the focus of the podcast. And what's cool is that if you're on the course and you're listening to this, leaving a comment or a community forum post may lead to new course content. Because suppose you ask a question about grammar, let's say, and you say, oh, well, this particular grammar point I'm unclear on, could you clarify it? And we answer it on the podcast. Well, we can then put that clip into the course itself because you're almost definitely not the only person who has that question. And this is how we've been doing it now for, uh, well, really since the podcast has existed. This is episode 129. So there's lots of great course content that derives from the community itself, which is something that, you know, we never expected when we first built Mandarin Blueprint, but we're thrilled is the case now because it means that Mandarin Blueprint is alive. It's something that is constantly changing. And we might be, Luke and I might be pretty important nodes in that network, but nonetheless, it is all of you that keep the energy flowing through the system. So thank you so much to all of you. Let's go to the first one, which is from Craig Cavanaugh in the community forum. Craig was one of the few people who took the course live in Chengdu a few years back. And so he then since, I think if I recall correctly, he had some on and off with Chinese, but he's now finished the intermediate course. So Craig says, hi, I recently finished the intermediate course and I'm trying to figure out what my next step should be. I'm hoping that someone else who finished can recommend things that they found most useful. I started watching and reading stuff and making sentences a while ago, so I've been carrying on with that, but I'd also like to start heading towards that 3,000 character goal. My issue is trying to decide what the appropriate characters and words are to learn. This is especially true of words. I often wonder if one is even worth learning when making sentences. Do people just start using the HSK lists as a framework, or is there somewhere else that is better? A good Anki deck, for characters would be great and would save a lot of time, but I'm happy making my own cards as I go. I really liked to know that what I was learning would be quickly useful when following the Mandarin Blueprint course, so would like to try and keep some of the efficiency when doing it myself. Thanks a lot, Craig. Yeah, well, of course, this is a big part of the reason why we are insistent on getting the advanced course done you know, at some point, because I agree with Craig that this isn't so easy to find. It's not so easy to just know exactly where to figure out what the most common words are. Now, what I can tell you is that the Remembering the Simplified Hands by James Heisig, book two, will give you a good sense of the less frequent characters that are still in the top 3,000. So I can recommend that book, and then you just need to apply the Hens a movie method to it. So Heisig will give it, it the Heisig method is essentially a nascent form of the Hens a movie method, but it doesn't have a pronunciation mnemonic in it. But since you know how to do that and you're very familiar with your actors and sets, this shouldn't be too much of a problem for you to do so. And there are many Anki decks. I think actually Rosan responded to Craig with a couple of good Anki decks here. Now, as for 
vocabulary words. Craig makes a good point that you can often wonder, do I even really need to use this word? And so, of course, there are words that are more frequent than less than other words, but the frequency really depends on the context. So you'll end up in situations where you use a word all the time because you're in that context a lot, but somebody else would never use it. So like, for example, I uh, just over the weekend learned how to say front wheel drive, rear wheel drive, and four wheel drive in Chinese because I don't drive. Uh, I, you know, in Chengdu, there's no need for me to drive or have a car. Uh, so I just, I mean, I have a driver's license from back in the States, but it doesn't apply in China. And because it's so convenient to get around here by public transportation, by uh, rental bikes that are everywhere, uh, and by um, DD, which is a, the equivalent, and all the many other car services, the equivalent of Uber or Lyft here, I just have no need for my own car. It would be more hassle than it's worth. So I don't think about this stuff very much. And so I don't use it. But my friend Scott, he has a car. He is really into cars. Uh, he loves sort of looking at different models of car and he's been a host at car shows. And so he's taken a particular interest in learning the Chinese vocabulary around cars. And it was funny because he mentioned, we, we the scenario was quite interesting. So we had turned a corner in Songpinggo and there was a car that had gotten stuck in the snow. And Scott and the rest of us, we saw it and we realized they needed some help pushing their car a bit forward so they could get out of the snowy bit. Because the way it was there was that if you just turned a corner and were in the shadow of a mountain, suddenly there was snow everywhere. And if you were outside the shadow, everything was melted. Uh, and so they were just stuck there. And uh, Scott mentioned that he was like, oh, you guys have a uh, a ho-chu a ho uh, car. And I went, is that the chu, uh, like, which means um, to, to expel somebody from a country. And that chu has the right side component, which is pronounced chu by itself, and it means like a region. And then the left side component is a horse, right? So you can understand that power, and we, say, we talk about horsepower, of course, right? Power in the back. So ho chu means rear wheel drive. And then it didn't take me long to go, well, I bet front wheel drive is qian chu. And I bet four-wheel drive is si chu, and that's why Chinese is so easy. Uh, but this is all just to say that the frequency of vocabulary is going to vary based on your specialization. Now, there is still a degree when you're at 1,500 characters, which is around where Craig is. There's still some very essential words, but there's less and less. You've got most of the essential words already, which means that you can be, well, it means two things. One is that you don't really know exactly what you're going to end up using a lot. You can follow your interest a bit if you know, well, I'm into uh, art, so I'm going to learn more about paints and I'm going to learn more about paint brushes and all of that. Uh, but to some degree, it's like, well, you can just learn a new word and just know that you're not only learning the word, you're also solidifying your understanding of grammar, you're solidifying your sentence structure, and you're just deepening your knowledge of the language and maybe you don't end up using the word, but kind of so what? So you didn't end up using the word very much. You still exposed yourself to it and maybe it'll come up again in a few years. But then the other thing that you can do uh, as a result of this sort of 
lack of necessity for certain words is that you can be more discerning about what you put into your flashcard diet, as it were. And this is a Katsumoto type thing to think about Katsumoto being the uh, founder of all Japanese all the time. This is his mentality, which is if you don't like a sentence, if you don't like a word, just skip it. I mean, if you have to pass the HSK test and that's a goal of yours, then you got to look at the HSK uh, word list and make sure that you're covering all the words because, you know, it's a test. It's going to test you on everything. So, but if you're not concerned about the HSK test, which you don't need to be, for sure you don't need to be, then I would say uh, that you could just say, I don't like this word. This word isn't interesting to me. I don't think I'm going to use it. Forget it. Because all that's going to happen between now and when you may find out, actually, I did need to know that word, is you're just going to get better at Chinese. And you're going to have a better ability to acquire that word. So it's actually, it's totally fine to just throw it out. Because we're worried that if we throw it out, we'll never learn it. And it's like, no, no, no. Because think about either you're right. There's two possibilities. Either you're right and you didn't need it, in which case, who cares that you didn't learn it. Or you were wrong and you needed it a year from now. Well, a year from now, you're going to be that much better at um, acquiring it because of your better contextual understanding of the language. So that's the time to learn it. So I would say that generally my few bits of advice would be one, think about your areas of interest. Two, uh, don't worry about it too much. If you're not sure about a word, you could just learn it anyway. But three, also throw out whatever you don't like. Just base it on emotion. Just go like, I don't like this. And for whatever reason, this word just makes me angry and I want to just throw things when I see it. So delete the, uh, delete the flashcard and that will work perfectly fine. Also, Luke just released a video about how to learn grammar and he gives some good advice on uh, how to sort of, you know, not just sentence mining, which it sounds like Craig was already doing, but also, you know, just thinking about uh, ways to learn grammar and finding good resources for it. So you're, of course, talking about words and characters, but it's all kind of interrelated at this point. You can take, you can learn a new character and then immediately tie that into words and uh, sentences because you already have a knowledge base in all of them. You understand how Chinese words are structured. You understand how to learn an individual character. Your grammar module has many different sent. You have a, already have a feeling for grammar for sure at this point. So the fact that that's true means that it all relates very uh, synergistically at this point. So thanks so much to Craig for that awesome question in the community forum. And I hope this was helpful. Next, we have a comment in the community forum from Jeff Bryant, and he says, Hi there, I'm Jeff in Alberta, Canada. I study and practice Chinese medicine and have made a few failed attempts at learning Mandarin over the years. I'm hoping to be able to read some original texts without requiring the sometimes hard-to-find translations, deepen my understanding of the material, as well as communicate with new people here and abroad and see where it takes me. Yeah, you know, of course, to function in Chinese traditional medicine, you have to have a solid foundation, but you've come to the right place with Mandarin Blueprint for that. Um, it's hard to just skip right to a specialization in any language, because especially Chinese, because you need to understand how the characters work. But I will say this, Chinese is excellent for um, this type of thing, medical language, for example, because one of the things that you'll discover when you get into these more specialized areas of Chinese is that Chinese is a great 
uh, categorical language. So you can just have the essence of a thing be the final character and whatever comes before it is like further descriptors of it. And this is, you know, you can see this in the animal kingdom. Like this thing is a ma. It's a big four, um, legged animal, animal that walks on all fours and has hooves. Um, and so, you know, maybe there, one of them is a horse, but another one is a pony and another one is whatever. And then you've got, uh, Lu, which is a slightly smaller four-legged animal with uh, hooves that don't actually, you know, there might be some classification of it. And then you've got uh, Changjing, Lu, which is a giraffe, right? So you look at that and you go, well, I never really connected giraffes with deer, but I can see how in Chinese they looked at those two animals and went, well, they share several characteristics, but then I'll say Changjing, long uh, neck or long back backbone vertebrae, you know, long neck vertebrae. And so it's like, well, yeah, there you go. And so if you say that, then you can clarify it's a giraffe. And the same thing would almost certainly be true of Chinese traditional medicine. And so you're going to find that reading the Chinese directly is easier, especially when you're saying that there are many uh, concepts that don't have a direct translation. You'll be able to see elements of the meaning in the character. Of course, Chinese traditional medicine is highly related to the language because it developed along with the language in terms of, um, you know, Chinese traditional medicine language came before Western medicine language. So there is, there's all of that. And I think that you'll have a great time with that. You know, one of the things that my, my mind's changed a lot about Chinese traditional medicine over the years. Uh, when I first came, I had a fairly typical Westerner view of it, which is to say, like, what do you mean Chinese traditional medicine? If it works, isn't it just medicine? What's Chinese about it? And then I sort of came to understand that perhaps it's the word medicine that is um, causing the confusion because we think of medicine as purely curative like it's like okay you you've suffered a trauma you need what you need medicine to cure you or you're you're ill so you need medicine to cure you whereas chinese traditional medicine tends to be a bit more focused on prevention and prevention is tricky because so you could think of it like a generalist so like many uh western doctors they're like i'm a neurologist or i focus on joints or i focus on the heart right but Chinese traditional medicine is more a general focus. And of course, the human body is so complex that if you take a generalist view of the body, A, you're going to get a bunch of things wrong because there's so many confounding variables. So you say, okay, I think I understand what might be happening with this person's heart because of how it interacts with the liver and the, the circulatory system. Oh, but I didn't consider that there was something in the endocrine system that made a difference. You know what I mean? Like there, or this person's diet, what are they putting into it? How are they breathing? Are they having a blockage in their uh, breath? How hydrated are they? What's, are they having too much sugar? You know, there's all sorts of elements that could be at play. So when you're a generalist, you kind of just have to go off of anecdotal evidence, what has worked for people in the past, uh, and to some degree tradition, right? And of course, tradition can sometimes sometimes is there because it made sense and it works. And sometimes it's there because we just didn't update with the times. So I certainly don't think that Chinese traditional medicine is just correct about everything. Clearly not, but I don't think anymore that it's just a nonsense idea. And so I'm sure that you'll uh, find a lot of the 
direct Chinese in that, Jeff, to be very enlightening as you move forward with that. Um, so good luck to you. Next, we have Simon Robinson in the community forum. So Simon says, I'm thinking out loud here and just wondering what sort of level would be required for reading Harry Potter. It is often mentioned as a gateway drug to reading in your target language, especially when learning Spanish or French. But for Chinese, is this something worth looking at after the intermediate course, or is it something better left until the advanced course comes out? Eventually, I would love to read Frank Herbert's Dune in Chinese, but will settle for Harry as a first step toward that. On a side note, I have to reschedule my dental appointment today via phone. I am in Taiwan. Normally, if in person, I think I would be able to get my point across, though imagine it would have been a bit messy. But phone is always more tricky as no facial expressions, etc. But to my surprise, it was super smooth. Everything was understood the first time for both me and them. I know it's a small thing and my wife was not too impressed, but for me, a big difference. So thank you to Mandarin Blueprint. All right, well, nice. So I'll just comment on that second bit first. Yeah, the phone is tough. If I'm, I still to this day, if somebody calls me and I don't know what they're calling for and I don't know who they are, so I don't have the context and they're speaking Sichuan Hua, like a very dialectical Sichuan Hua, uh, I will sometimes struggle because, uh, and now all it takes usually is a little bit of context, like, oh, you're the guy who delivers my water usually, although it wouldn't normally be that because I'd be, I'd be expecting a call from that guy. But like, you know what I'm saying? Like if it's, you're the, oh, you, you're from my gym and you're calling me about something like that, then, then I can suddenly get on top of it and understand what's going on. But it's like, it's, the phone can be very tricky because you're lacking so many of those nonverbal cues. So, but well done. And so back to the first one about Harry Potter and essentially about reading books in your target language. At what point are you ready for it with Chinese? Well, I'll bring up something that I believe it was Stephen Krashen who said it was either Stephen Krashen or Steve Kaufman. Um, but I think it was Stephen Krashen who talked about how uh, in when he was learning Russian, uh, he would read Star Trek content. You know, there's lots of uh, content in the Star Trek universe because he loved Star Trek and he would read it even when it was only at 60% comprehension, right? Which is um, pretty wild. That's way lower than the extensive reading uh, that is the optimal area. It's extensive reading. Extensive reading is about 98% comprehension, but that's for content that you are unfamiliar with. So if you're familiar with the content and you like the content, you can handle or tolerate, I should say, a far lower level of comprehension because you're, it's not, you don't have a foundation of zero with the raw meaning, if that makes sense. So you know that like Ron, Hermione, and Harry were doing this adventure and they were doing this thing generally. So it's easier to pick up on stuff because you have your memory of the story sans language, your imagery of the story as it were. So the first thing I would say is that you do not have to be at 98% level, 98% comprehension to give it a shot. Now, Harry Potter is surprisingly tricky. I mean, like, it's like, there are definitely a lot of somewhat advanced characters certainly start off with the first Harry Potter book, because um, for those of you who've read the books, you'll be aware that they become sort of more advanced and darker as the series goes on, because I mean, perhaps that was intentional, because at the beginning, he's only supposed to be 11 years old. So it's a relatively simple first book. And then like the seventh book is 
quite complicated, right? So I would recommend that you start with the first book and make, you know what, buy it now, Simon, buy it before you're way before you're ready for it. And then just occasionally glance at it, but take a very relaxed view of it. Just be like, huh, to see what I notice. Don't try to like get engrossed in the story because that might be frustrating because you'll feel like, oh, I don't know this character. I don't know that character. I, I'm no good at Chinese. I'm never going to get there. Ah, you know, like that, that's not the line of thinking you want to go down. You want to just look at it and kind of have an attitude like you did calling the dentist and just be like, well, let's just see what happens. And so I would say though, regarding Harry Potter, that I read them, uh, when I was in university. So I just like read it on the side and, you know, it's a good one to pick up because I know the story. And so I know I was a big fan of it when I was a kid. I was like a you know, big Harry Potter fanboy as a kid. So like I would really enjoy reading it in Chinese and then sort of reconceptualizing everything. It really helped me with my Chinese. So um, that's why I say buy it now so that you don't like forget to buy it later, right? Have it available to you. And then what I would suggest is if you can get the audiobook as well, uh, of course, if you're going to get the audiobook, make sure the audiobook and the text are exactly the same because sometimes the translations aren't the same. I'm sure there are many different Chinese translations of Harry Potter. Uh, it's not like they did it once and, you know, they left it there. Many different people translated it. And that really goes to show you how translation is more art than science because, like, they're totally different um, despite it being the same story. But I would say that if you want to understand Harry Potter to like above 98% comprehension, you're going to need the full 3,000 characters at least. And there's still going to be characters you don't know, but you'll be able to figure it out through context. But that's if you want to get to 98%. Like I said, you do not have to be at 98% if you know the content and like the content. That's the key, enjoying it. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not just knowing it. It's also enjoying it. So that would be my response for you, Simon, uh, regarding how to deal with something like buying Harry Potter and how to judge your uh, level there. Next, we have Nick Sims on Vocab Unlocked from Yu, Kou Yu, Yan, Han Yu, Yu Fa. So these are all related to language. And he says, you know what is awesome about this? These Vocab Unlocked totally make sense just looking at the characters. There is some serious building blocks happening in my brain in this language that just is starting to make sense. Whoa. And so, yeah, there is a real beauty and logic to Chinese because once you have the building blocks, the the bucket of meanings that are Chinese characters, the buckets of bucket of morphemes, and that's how you build the language as opposed to doing it based on uh, alphabet first and then you know, uh, having several different source languages like English does, it can just, I don't know, there's just so many words that come to you right away. Um, like I was mentioning earlier before, you have qu, hou qu, and si qu means um, front wheel drive, real, rear wheel drive, and four wheel drive, respectively. As soon as I learned one of them, I knew the other two immediately because it's just obvious what they would be. And so, uh, this happens all the time in Chinese. It's a great feeling. I'm glad that you're feeling that, Nick. That's awesome. You're going to be uh, getting more and more in that, more and more of that as you move forward. There's kind of like a a peak of it at some point, probably in the intermediate stage, and then you, the law of diminishing returns. But you're still going to be fascinated with how the language puts stuff together as you continue forward. Next, we have, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, uh, Stelios Tigkas. Stelios Tigkas on bonus 
Stroke Order Rule 12 of 12. He says, I've been trying to see if there is a unifying pattern underlying the stroke order, perhaps having to do with using the least energy possible while moving one's pen. As an IT geek, my mind went to Dijkstra's algorithm. And then he left a link to the Wikipedia article on Dijkstra's al algorithm. Any similar thoughts from other students or Phil and Luke? You know, I don't know uh, much about what might have been the unifying pattern underlying the stroke order. My feeling about stroke order has been pretty consistent the whole time, which is that stroke order is not particularly uh, important to think about too much. If you follow stroke order gifts or you read how to write the stroke order properly and you just follow it, uh, you'll eventually get it naturally. To be honest, that's why we call these all bonus. My feeling is that if we had just said to you at the beginning of the course, just follow the stroke order gifts and you'll get the hang of stroke order, uh, that people would get it and that they wouldn't have a problem and they would intuit what you're supposed to do. So um, I don't know that there's some kind of unifying theory about it. I do know that it is very easy to intuit uh, as you practice it. And so now if I see a new character I may that I've never written before, I may not know with definitive absolute certainty that I'm getting the stroke order right, but I'm 99% going to be getting it right because of how easy it is to intuit. So yeah, that would be my answer to that one. Nacho on Cao Chong Cheng Xiang, which is one of the stories from phase five, it's the full story at 90% comprehension. And Cao Chong Cheng Xiang is like a Chinese fairy tale. It's like a Chinese uh, story told to kids about uh, this young little lad called Cao Chong, who is Cao Cao's son. And this clever thing he did with an elephant. elephant, I won't spoil the story before you get there. So here's what Nacho says. I was focusing not only on shadowing each story, but also studying step-by-step -step every sentence. But now it's a bit overwhelming with all these stories. Really interesting ones, but also overwhelming if I try to study every sentence of every story. Do you consider I need to keep the method I've been using until now, shadowing and then studying every sentence? Or on the other hand, if I just focus on shadowing step-by-step, -step, I will understand everything, I guess, in the long run, so that I would improve my study method. Thank you, Luke and Phil, once more, you're the best. So, a few bits of advice here. One, I don't think you need to shadow every single uh, story, certainly not when you arrive at it. So, if you can imagine that there's, okay, there's 40 stories in phase four, there are fewer stories in phase five, but there's to more overall characters, right? Like, it's like they're longer. So, um, with each one, you know, maybe you pick, five stories from phase four out of 40 to properly shadow. And maybe you pick uh, one of the eight long form stories in phase five to properly shadow, uh, or you pick a paragraph of a couple of them, you know? So the first thing I would say is that you do not need to shadow all of them. It's good. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. If you're shadowing all of them, then man, you're going to have some really great pronunciation moving forward. But uh, my recommendation would be to mostly just try to understand them. Just, just try to understand them. That's your primary goal do your best to understand them. Now, second point. These stories are um, these stories are at 90% comprehension at the moment. And all of the phase five stories will come up again 
in the intermediate course for the most part uh, that are when they reach 98% comprehension. And maybe that's the better point to try to shadow them. So perhaps the way you can approach the phase five stories is to do it like this. Just only worry about understanding them when you're running across the 90% comprehension levels. And then later when you get to 98% comprehension and you've learned more and you've seen more sentences and you've learned more grammar and all that, then you'll see them again at 98%, you're much better prepared to shadow them at that point. Because you're making a good point, Nacho, which is that it's easier to shadow when you understand. When you understand what's going on in the story and you get the, you know, uh, beginning, middle, and end of the story pretty clearly, then shadowing it can be, uh, it's just less of a pain. It's less of a, it requires less skull sweat. And so my recommendation would be don't shadow every story. And also uh, the best time to shadow is when you get to 98%. And just as a reminder for people, in phases four and five, you're not yet to 80% comprehension of the language because Chinese is like anything. It's the Pareto principle. It's the 80-20 rule. 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the results in most endeavors, knowledge endeavors, right? Um, and so getting the most frequent characters and words cover 80% of the language by frequency, which means that if a character is really, really frequent and you learn it, you get a lot of bang for your buck. And so that's why in the foundation course, we cover the characters that get you to 80% comprehension of the language, which is to say, if there was a, char a, a an article of a thousand characters, you would know 800 of the characters in that article. Now, that isn't because those 800 characters that you understand don't have any repeats. They have loads of repeats. When you look through any article, look for how many times the word, the character d appears. And you can just do a control F or command F search of any article in Chinese and just type in d and see how many times it comes up. It's loads of times, right? But in phases four and five, you're not yet at that 80% threshold. And it's very interesting because before you get to 80%, it's quite difficult to tell a story that is interesting and also 98% comprehension. Uh, so we start with 90%, which is better than, you know, uh, many stories that you'll have. But we have to have a fair few top-down words. Of course, we tell you every top-down word. Market and Blue give you a definition and all of that. But it is still below the extensive reading level. It's at that intensive reading level. However, what's really amazing is when you get over that 80% threshold, it starts to become significantly easier to have an interesting story that is also at around 98% comprehension. And that's what we're discovering with the intermediate stories, which by the way, uh, we're working on those. Uh, there was, you know, we're working on the audio for them at the moment, but we're getting close. We're we're on our way. We hit a couple of small delays, but nothing that is uh, too difficult to deal with. It was just sort of like, you know, one thing I've learned running a business is that uh, no matter how much you try to ensure that there aren't mistakes on something as big as like 64 uh, <laughs> intermediate story articles in Chinese, there's still going to be uh, things that you run into. And if you put a new set of eyes on something, uh, they're going to notice some mistakes that the other people didn't. So like what happened was the people who were recording the audio, uh, they were like, hey, you really shouldn't say it this way. You should say it this way. And so like, you know, next thing you know, they're, they've got a list of things to change and, but it's good. It just means that they're going to be higher quality, uh, when they do come out. So hopefully that was helpful, helpful Nacho. And, uh, yeah, waiting to get to 98% might be the best 
piece of advice out of all the things I said there. Next, we have John Nomura on Zhexie in context. He says, Bairen can mean white people. Can it also refer to a non-white person who is fair-skinned? No, like if you say Bairen, it's referring to uh, Caucasians. However, you could refer to somebody's pifu as being hanbai, right? But you have to specify pifu, right? So if you just say Bairen, that's just the word for Caucasian. So um, that's just kind of how that works. But as soon as you say... Um, that's fine. You could say that about, um, you know, an, a person of Asian descent who's got particularly white skin. That's a big thing here in China is like, you know, sort of the porcelain doll idea. They're like they not everywhere, but a lot of places look at a woman with very white light skin as being more beautiful. Right. And it's kind of funny because the opposite, you know, when I was growing up, in the States, uh, girls always wanted to tan. They always wanted to get out and uh, do some tanning at the beach. And so they wanted to get darker, right? And here, they would, when the sun comes out, you see all the umbrellas come out. It's, it's so funny. The, you see more umbrellas on a very sunny day here in Chengdu than you do on a rainy day. So it's like ill-prepared for rain and uh, over-prepared for uh, sun and also lacking vitamin D, I suppose. <laughs> all right. Next, we have... Rick Angelin on Vocab Unlocked from Fun. Uh, so this is the word for a month of the year. So let's see here. He says, the sample sentences I could find use this in two ways. One, to refer to months as an object slash noun. For example, ego yuefen. Yeah, that's sure, that's correct. In the names of months, for example, ba yuefen, which can be abbreviated to ba yue. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, you know, yuefen makes it clear that what you're talking about is the fun, the portion of the year uh, that is moon-based or month-based, right? So that, because you could say and that would mean eight months, but means August, right? So there's that distinction that you can make there. And, um... You know, you could use as an object slash noun to refer to a month's worth of time, uh, but you can also just say for that, um, or but if you put in the measure word before, then that indicates that you're not talking about the month of the year, you're talking about a length of time. Uh, so cool, nice. Next, we have Thomas Brand on Vocab Unlocked from Yao, which includes a few words. And so he says here, a living link for Yao Shi. If you want to be, so that's what those two characters mean, want to be my lover, you got to get with my friends. <laughs> want to be in the Spice Girls. So, of course, that sentence starts with if which is what yaoshi means so uh excellent connection there and as usual with these types of lessons um i like to talk through the other characters as well through the, or the other words in the podcast so the other words are kuai yao zhu yao and xiang yao so kuai yao very useful it means quickly will and so it it's pretty obvious what it means right so it's saying quickly will something about to 
right? So, 快要下雨了，快要下雨了 ，and that means it's about to rain. And you throw in the 了 at the end because it's going to be a change, right? 快要下雨了 which means that the current situation is not raining, but it's about to change and start raining. So,、uh, that's where you'll use 快要 a lot, and so. Uh, I don't think it's too necessary in that type of a word to come up with something overly complicated in terms of a living link. You can just kind of go, you know, it makes sense on its own.、Um, but then you have 主要主要 also pretty straightforward because 主 means like the master or lord,、um, and so 要 means like kind of a You know, to to want or to will, or even sometimes a requirement. But 主要 means the main thing, the main idea, the main.、Um, it's usually used in an adverbial way, like so, kind of like mainly, right? And that just makes sense, doesn't it? Because of course, that of the master, what the master wants, is the main thing, right? So you could perhaps imagine、uh, a king or a, a lord of some sort. Uh, stopping an entire,、um, like cutting in line, perhaps, because of course he is the 主要 It's mainly about what he wants,、uh, right? And then 想要 This is a good word because it makes it clear the distinction between wanting versus will. If you're saying 想要 there's no way that 要 means will, right?、Um, as in I will do something. It definitely means want. So 想要 is your desire, your want, and so by having 想 which means Either to desire, to want, or it can mean to think, but in this case, it's not think. Or yell, which either means to desire or want or will, definitely not will. So for sure, 想要 means to want or desire. So hopefully that's helpful for this particular Living Links lesson. Hank Elliot on vocab unlocked from Tom. Tom is this is a great character. It can mean together, or it can mean to unify, or like gather together in that way. Tongyi, Tongyi is to unify, right? So, Xi、uh, Tong is a system. So,、uh, a system in that case is it's sort of like the relationships unified or the relationships together is a system. So, Xi Tong, right? Tongzhi、um, is to kind of.、Uh, To 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 govern over an area, like to kind of have a ubiquitous governing situation. Tong Zhi Zhi is a character that we haven't come across yet, but still, that's how you can might use this. Now, the word that Hank is bringing up here is Tong Zhi, which means statistics,、uh, and also Tong Zhi Xia can mean、uh, it can also mean to like put the statistics together as a verb, but primarily it's a、uh, You know, you're gonna be using this noun form. He says, "Tong together, ji calculator count, tong ji statistics aren't statistics often only possible when we count stuff together." So yeah, the unified calculation or the、uh, counting of stuff together—that's your statistics. So look at that,、uh, great stuff.、Um, you know,、uh, yeah, great, great, good stuff there. Hank Elliot on vocab unlocked from ji. So he says, "Jingji is economy." I have known the character Jing as representing TCM, traditional Chinese medicine channels, for a long time. Ji means to aid. I see this word as 
aiding the flow of energy, money, goods, food, oil, etc. And if you aid the flow, it's more economical or an economy aids the flow of all goods and services. I like it. I like how you're thinking, Hank. You're making that very clear. There's a lot of visualization to that as well, I think. And so uh, this certainly makes a lot of sense. Uh, all things considered. And that, you know, I like that about that is that Jingji is the, that character Jing is used, uh, sorry, Jing. It's used all the time uh, in so many different contexts. Like, you know, Sheng uh, Jing is the Bible, right? So it's like a Jing can be an ancient text of some sort. Um, but Jing, like Jing Guo means to pass by something or to go through something and experience something in a general way. But it can mean literally like I'm passing by the stadium, right? Um, right? So that would be an example of using it in a literal sense. Um, like that would be uh, having gone through... Uh, the very difficult pandemic, he did, so did something, right? Um, so seeing Jingji in this context, you know, I, I had memorized it as meaning economy a long time ago, but it makes it fit better considering its many different meanings. So thanks for that, uh, Hank. Alex Sumray on Vocab Unlocked from Sun. He says, I'm making this up as I go, but as Sun seems to denote a grandson first, and by adding Nu to it, we change the meaning to granddaughter. Does this suggest something historically about how boys and girls were seen in China? You know, it might be more accurate to say that Sun is grandchild, right? Because Sun Zi is the word for, uh, for grandson and Sun um, Nu. Sun Nu is granddaughter, and really, when it's third tone, it means son, S-O-N, and Nu obviously by itself means female, so it's really just, there's no, neither of the words is more prominent than the other, right? So it's either Sun Zi, male indication, or Sun Nu, female indication, so it's not like one stands above the other in any particular sense, so I would say that there, you know, of course, there's relationship between boys and girls and how they are viewed in China. And I mean, more recently, when the one child policy was happening, uh, there was a desire to have boys more than girls. And that led to a bunch of, uh, you know, sort of terrible things happening. And so and it's also led to there being an imbalance between men and women in China today. And so certainly there's stuff to be said about the view of the sexes in China. But I don't think that this particular word indicates that uh, because they're they're really just equivalent to each other. Kevin Lee on quiet in context. He says, I tried to find this answer somewhere else on the website, but could not. Numbers. Why do we use Arabic-based numbers used in Western languages for sentences like instead of just using the Mandarin numbering system? So, you know, it, it's funny. I never really thought about this. Um, you know, I see both. Um, but I certainly see the Arabic numbers used more often uh, in, you know, Chinese books or you're reading a book that's in Chinese and they're referring to the time or whatever. It does tend to be the Arabic numbers, assuming we're actually talking about a digit. We're not talking about like a, uh, like a measure word like 
一块面包, it's going to be for sure 一, the horizontal line at that point. Um, but if we're talking about something like 十点, right? Or uh, like 2008 uh, or, or 2021 or whatever, you're going to see the numbers usually. And I mean, every now and then you see the numbers written out as Chinese characters, and it always does feel a little bit weird. Like when I read it... Um, and all the numbers are written out, it feels strange. And then there's another twist to this, which is that there are actually versions of the the numbers one through ten that are more that are more complicated because they're used in banking. Uh, so like in banking, they don't want there to be any possible confusion where two different characters could be uh, confused, so they use a different set of characters to represent one through ten, well zero through ten, so that there's no possibility of getting something wrong. Uh, and so, on the one hand, in real text, uh, like this is I say day to day text, they tend to use the Arabic numbers for um, your sort of day to day stuff, but then they tend to use um, the very formal separate set of 10 for banking, which is, of course, you know, in a more uh, polished environment where things have to be correct. And then very rarely do you actually see digits written out. I've seen it. It's like it's not unheard of, but yeah, it is much more common to, to see the Arabic. And I would just imagine it's just to save on um, time and energy, right? So like it's like uh, 2021, right? 2021 versus just writing those four digits out. I mean, you know, it's pretty close. I mean, like certainly Ling, <laughs> writing out Ling, that's a much, many more strokes than R, right? Or Yi. So you just write out 2021. They're a little bit easier to write. So could just be that. Oscar Hagland on Renzhen in context. In the sentence, and you can only teach them seriously page by page. So we have here as a top-down word, jiao, to teach. He says, pretty sure this should be fourth tone. It actually is supposed to be first tone. And so the reason why is because, well, first of all, you're going to see jiao or jiao. We teach it as fourth tone because in every context where it's combined with another character, it's pretty much always fourth tone. So like xue is the concept of education or yu also education. Um, you know, xue is a bit more like formal education at a school, whereas like yu is just general education. Like you must educate your child, but the way they educate them, you educate them is not specifically just schools, right? And in those cases, it's fourth tone. However, when it is by itself as a verb, meaning to teach, it's pronounced jiao. Now, I imagine, I'm not totally sure of this, but what would make sense to me is that the reason that this happened naturally is because there's another common verb that's fourth tone, jiao, which means to call someone, right? Or like to call something someone, some situation, or to get someone to do something. You know, 我叫他过来, which is essentially the same as 我让他过来. Uh, like I say, hey, come over here. I got him to come over here. Or I just, um, you can call me Phil. But 
The problem is that's the exact same context that you would say jiao to teach, which so that's why you think maybe they said jiao instead, so that you could auditorily distinguish between to call and to teach. So wo zai jiao ta. I'm calling him. Wo zai jiao ta. I am teaching him, right? I was over exaggerated the first term, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, so that's the idea. So it is actually supposed to be first tone when it is used by itself as a verb. And there are some other examples in uh, Plico where it's first tone in two character words, but none of them are of any particular frequency. It's mostly just in the, um, it, it, it's in the few of the, it, it's in the many words that are two characters that are high frequency where it's fourth tone. There's a lot of them, so. Roland Koffler on new vocabulary unlocked for shuohua and dianhua. Shuohua, how can one know if the tones are applied to the first or second vowel? Shuohua uh, versus shuohua. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't really worry about this too much in general because it's all one syllable anyway. I mean, it's, if you break down the syllable, you can see that you know, there's technically two sounds there, but it happens so fast that you can effectively just think of it as it's all happening at the same time to both. But the where the tone marker is actually is an indication of what vowel holds the tone the longest. So shuo o o is over the o. The tone mark for shuo in pinyin is over the o. So that way you know that it's the o that holds it out longer. Uh, hua, it's over the a. Ah. Ah, it's not hua, it's hua, hua, right? So that gives you a sense of how that works. If you, where you see where the tone marker is, that is where the majority of the uh, emphasis goes on. But again, you'd have to really slow it down. You'd have to really slow down the audio to discover that. It, it just all fits together in one syllable, so it should be fine. Pascal Prosinski on flashcards inside must watch how to review with the Manor Bloomer method. He says... When there are movie review cards that I easily recognize at this moment, is it recommended to still take the time and think about the movie in my mind again? Like when I see the card for sure, I directly recognize it and know what it means 10 without thinking about the previously thought of movie. Well, this is the eventual goal. Certainly you want to be able to not have to remember your movie to remember the character because... Uh, some one thing that's easy to forget when you start doing the hens of movie method is that eventually you're going to be able to use all of these characters easily in context while reading and understanding the language and once you reach that level where you can use a character over and over eventually you've got it for life eventually you've you've succeeded and especially with something like sure uh it's really easy now i say that with the caveat that if you know a character or you say you know a character but there's an, even an element of it that you're not sure about particularly the tone then i would recommend still uh making a scene out of it. But it's okay to eventually forget your scene. In fact, that's usually what will happen because your brain remembers things, not perfectly, it's not like a perfect computer in this way, but it tends to remember things that are useful to it. And so if you have gotten to the point where you know the character and you know the words and you've seen them so many times, then the movie no longer remains useful to you. And so it's like almost like your brain can forget it. So if you are doing your flashcards and you instinctually know what the answer is, 
uh, then you didn't even have to think of your movie again. And eventually your brain's going to go, I got it. You know, no need to remember this particular movie. Now, some movies you're going to remember forever, no matter what, because they're hilarious or something. Um, but it's definitely okay to eventually forget them just so long as you, um, you know, keep doing your SRS and you keep adding to the process, the the flow of learning the language from characters into words, into sentences, into paragraphs, and so forth. Comprehensible input. Brendan Gittens on Pick a Prop for Horns. Now, having watched the video about making a prop for Ben, I'm not sure that this is going to work. Luke notes that the prop should be interactable, not just in action. For example, cutting something in half. My prop relies on the actor making this gesture, so should I rethink this prop? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, try not to have your props be actions, if possible. Having a, the prop be tangible. So, like, uh, the one I always think of with half is the Russian dolls that you keep cutting in half, and there's a half-sized one inside. It might not be actually half-sized, but certainly you cut you cut them all in half. So the idea of them being uh, representing half makes sense, and they are very interactable. In fact, they could you could come up with some funny stories with the Russian dolls revolting. <laughs> Next, we have Jeff Bryant on vocab unlocked from e. So he came up with four different sound mnemonics to remember these. He says, which is Ned Flanders, and that, that one resonates with me a lot. And of course, means can, but it kind of can mean okay as well, like, right? Can I go to the bathroom, teacher? Okay. And it's like, because in English, we would say okay there, and in Chinese, if you directly translate it, it'd be like, can I go to the bathroom? Can. Well, may I go to the bathroom? May, right? It's a, we don't, but we don't do that in English. So it's appropriate to say that sometimes it kind of means okay, right? It's a translation. So nice. So we got that for kui. Um, hilarious. And then he says, yi wei, he ain't thinking right. So yi wei means to think mistakenly. And so he's, you know, yi wei, yi wei, he ain't, right? He ain't thinking right. I like it. Then we have, Yi Shang, he sang. Yi Shang, he sang. He sang higher than everyone. So you can imagine a guy who's singing really high, right? And so that would work perfectly there. And then Yi Shang, Yi Xia, he saw. He saw what's downstairs. And so, of course, in that situation, you have to imagine that he's looking downstairs. But certainly, I like this. Four good sound mnemonics that help relate back to the meaning. Perfect. Next, here's a good one from Ija on Vocab Unlocked from Dao. So the sentence is So this essentially means parents should lead their children to create the correct sanguan. And so sanguan is a shorthand for and which are basically your values, worldview, and um, I guess your perspective on life. So let's break them down. If you say so your perspective on value. Guan is your standpoint, your perspective, how you're looking at things, you're observing them with that's how what guan means, right? And so is value, your observations about value, right? 世界 means the world, so your 
perspective on the world, your worldview. Uh, and then Renzheng is like, it's not like Shenghuo, which means life like my life. It's more like Renzheng, the the human life, the what is your perspective on human life and what it is. It's kind of a broader, deeper topic. And so they'll just for shorthand, they'll just say Sanguan. Now, it's really interesting to talk to people about these in China because you've got different types of Sanguan. You've got Fuojiaoda Sanguan, so Buddhist uh, worldviews, values, and uh, life perspectives. Uh, you've got uh, uh, Marxist. Apparently, like this got really popular during the Marxist time in China, but it's also, it's not like these, you know, Buddhists don't have values, worldviews, and perspectives on life. They have quite a few. Um, in fact, Renzhengguan might be their best uh, area. Now, you could have this in Taoism, you could have it in many different areas. And so, what I like about this is this is a constant conversation in China, which is one of the reasons why it's, I often think that when p the people in the West are observing China from the outside, they're underestimating just how deep the conversations are that people are having uh, and that they might have some reasons for uh, the way that they behave. Now, I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not like trying to justify any particular thing that, say, the Chinese government does or something. I'm just saying that the we tend to be just very blankety with how we look at different countries sometimes. It's just like, oh, well, you know, uh, their government did this bad thing, so um, it must just be a terrible place to live. Or they don't have the same value of, say, free speech that we have in our country, so they must suck. And it's like, that doesn't mean they're not talking about all this stuff, or that they don't have a value in, uh, say, um, truth or speech. It's just they might value them slightly differently or put them on a different ranking ranking order and whatever you know what somebody's guan. well they might be like well my family is at the top of my value list and uh you know maybe it's higher than my sense of general free speech as an example uh so that's kind of what is a general thing about sanguan and the it's funny it would be nice to ejas would be nice to have some cultural insights on the meaning of sanguan but of course it's a lifelong pursuit for anybody to try to really understand these things. And of course, uh, it's constantly in conversation and changing with the times. But so there isn't really a cultural insight other than to say that um, there it got particularly popular during the Marxist times, but they now think of it in application to many different types of um, sort of systems of thought. I guess you could say. I was going to say worldviews, but that's Shijieguan. So it's really more systems of thought. And those things, they kind of all tie together very well. Next, Jeff Bryant on Vocab Unlocked from Kai, Kai Xin, Kai Men, Kai Hui, Da Kai. So he says, Kai Xin, you'll be happy to cash in that lottery ticket. I like that. So happy is what Kai Xin means. And so he's cash in, Kai Xin. I like it. Kai Men, which means literally to open the door. Remember Kramer, aka K Man, Kai Men from Seinfeld and how he always bursts in the door? I sure do. That was great <laughs> when he would uh, when he would do that. So that's fantastic. And then Kai Hui, you can meet a lot of people on a stuck highway. Nice. I like that. So he's taking the end of stuck. And that's a smart one, Jeff, there. Because, you know, 
you can find the borders on all these different spots. So stuck highway, kaihui, kaihui, right? I like that. That's awesome. Um, sick. And then of course the final word here is dakai, which Jeff didn't put a a um, mnemonic for that. But what I always like about with something like dakai, um, uh, you know, dakai, uh, da, it can mean to to hit, of course, but it has so many different meanings, like dots. It's not like literally hitting the keyboard in like a punching type of way. Uh, or, you know, so, but da kai is kind of like to use your hand to open something in some way. Uh, you know, da kai ping zi, uh, ba ping zi, da kai is also another way you could say that. Um, uh, so, da kai, da kai. I feel like there's something there with a sound, but, you know, like it's thinking of duck high. So like a duck's like really high and he's just uh, opening doors of his mind. All right, cool. This is a good question that applies very well to a lot of people. Michelle Eason on lie in context. She says, so I'm about to begin level 13. Should I be perfectly familiar with all the words and characters before I begin? I know I rushed through some characters without really cementing them because I was having so much fun. So I don't have perfect recall yet. Will that come as I do level 13 or should I drill everything in more first. I've been stuck for a couple of weeks now just doing Anki, but I feel like I'm losing ground. So here's my recommendation. Um, if you're feeling like you didn't learn things properly, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go back to the lesson. Although in the first two phases, all of the flashcards have a link to the lesson. So you, you'd be able to do so if you wanted to, but I don't think it's necessary. I think that you can just do a few days of just Anki and just ask yourself, if I forgot something, can I solidify my knowledge? So particularly with the characters, it's not, it's not as important with the words because the words will come up more and more, but uh, with the characters, if you forgot one or you didn't remember an element of it, then uh, just taking some time to go, I got that wrong. So since I got that wrong, make sure that my HMM scene is slick and right on top of things. Uh, and so with that in mind, I think that you could say that it is perfectly fine to just stop learning new content for a little bit, focus on Anki, discover which ones you uh, didn't totally have down. And then after you've done that for a day or two, you should be all right. Now, also remember that once you start learning sentences, you're going to see characters again, and maybe you didn't totally nail the character before, but you're going to have a chance to reinforce it when learning the sentence. So like, that's another opportunity for you. So like, say you forgot a character, but only just, and then you see it in a sentence, you go, oh yeah, yeah, I forgot that. But now I remember again. And of course, in the sentence, the, uh, the audio is saying it out loud. So I know how it's pronounced. Oh yeah, it's pronounced me. And I remember that I was with Marilyn Monroe in the bedroom of my childhood home. And there was, uh, some horns and a big Christmas tree shooting out rice, you know, and now I remember that me means rice. So that's an example of how you might discover that your hands and movie method scene gets triggered by the sentences itself. So there's that to consider as well. Rick Engelin on vocab unlocked from chu, chu lai, chu chu. 出国, 出发, 出现. And he noticed about that 出现 and 发现 are both words that are similar. And 出现 means to emerge and 发现 means to discover. And so he said, so both happen in the now, 现. The emerging object goes out, 出, 
and the discovering person is sent out. Fa, right, so it's kind of, I like this connection that he's making there. So really the difference between chu xian and fa xian is the passive nature versus active nature. So chu xian is something that just happens um, from the perspective of, you know, the person observing it just emerges, right? Chu uh, in general has that kind of sense of it in many cases, not always, but like chu uh, xian is something that emerges, it appears out of, you know, not necessarily nowhere, but certainly it's not, it's a passive observation. Whereas fa xian feels more active. It's like you've sent out yourself to figure something out and discover something. You've, you know, discovering uh, how electricity works, you know, but then again, sometimes it can be uh, a bit of a gray area, but that's the general idea there between the two. So good observation there from Rick. And then the other elements of the other words that come out in this lesson are chu lai and chu qu. Those are just directional compliments. So uh, if I'm out and my friend is calling me from his apartment, I might say chu lai ba, chu lai ba, come out. Because from my perspective, he would be coming out. He's like, hao de wo chu qu la. And people will often say chu uh, qu ar, chu qu ar, right? Like I'll go out. That just basically means go out on a, like a Friday night or something, right? Uh, war is not just for kids to play in Chinese. It just means generally like leisure activities, doing leisurely stuff that's not work. You know, it's just generally war. And then chu guo, it means to go abroad. So exit the kingdom, exit the country. Uh, pretty straightforward. I don't know. Imagine a guy... He's in China and he just walks over to Mongolia or he walks over to Russia, whatever. <laughs> That's a simple one there. And then Chufa is to exit and send out, which means to depart. And that's a, you know, very common word. Uh, it makes sense in this case. So you're exiting, you're departing, uh, you're sending out, um, you know, I guess you could imagine that uh, yeah, here's a, here's one you imagine you walking out of your house and then you go to send a text fa uh, which is the word you use for text sending a text right fa duan xin and when you hit send you depart right so maybe that could be and as you depart you're like in a plane or something i don't know it's, it's it would be fairly easy to come up with a mnemonic for that one alexander greenwood on wo ye xiang jiao nan peng you which is a short story from phase four. He says, expanding on the yo, yo construction, is it possible to include more than two details? So he's saying you'll use double yo when there is two descriptors about a person. So, ta yo gao yo shuai. He's tall and handsome. Uh, and he says, say in this example, if she had three traits, that she was looking for in a boyfriend, would it be possible to use the yo construction? So no, but it's it, here's why, because once you get beyond two, you're really just starting to make a list. And so once you start making a list of say adjectives, you just use um, what's called a dou hao. And so there's the, or sorry, a dun hao. A dou hao is a um, comma, and a dun hao is a, this is a, um, a, a punctuation that only the Chinese has that English doesn't. And it looks like a comma, but instead of like a comma is usually kind of like going back a little bit. The do, the dunhao is going like a, a forward slash down, but it's, you know, size of a comma. It's quite small. Um, and the dunhao, you use that for making some kind of a list. Um, 
And so in, you would just do that once you get beyond two. And so also in a similar vein, though not directly related to the construction here, is it possible to use more than two EBN when describing concurrent events? In this case, I don't see why not, because EBN just sort of means on one on the one hand, on the other hand, on another hand, or like or on the one side, on another side, on another side. I don't see why you couldn't do that. Um, but you know, with any of these things, it's not like they're the only way to say that concurrent events are happening, or it's the only way to describe someone with more than one or two traits. Uh, there's you know different ways you could try to express these things, but you know. I don't see any reason why you couldn't have three things with EBN, for example. Um, but with the yo yo, I've never seen like yo gao, yo shuai, yo pang, or something like that, right? I've never seen three of them. And that's because um, you can either break them down into different phrases or you could break them down into a list with the dun hao. So there's just no need to. Um, you know, once you get beyond two, it's like, well, you're just making a list at this point. William Beeman on Vocab Unlocked from Tie, R Tie, and Bing Tie. He says, hi, guys. Could you say a little bit more about the wider use of Bing? It seems to have multiple functions, including being a seeming synonym for He. And it's not exactly a synonym for He because He is used mostly with nouns, right? So it's like, Ta wo, he and I, that's fine. But you don't use he to connect verbs. So here's a simple one. Um, I agree with and support. So agree and support. Uh, I agree with and support China's stance. You know, uh, Right, so that would be an example, and I use that as an example because bing and bingqie tend to be used in slightly more formal context because a lot of times if you want to just say two verb or verbs or verb phrases, you could just say, um, sometimes you can say them without any kind of bing. It's like, so you can just say, um, uh, 我赞同你也支持你, right? Like just add yeah, and then like, say ni twice, and then easy enough, right? So bing qie tends to be used when it's with like, in this case, it tends to be used with two character, somewhat more formal verbs, but it's connecting verbs. And then um, bing by itself can also be used to indicate a negative, but express some level of tone of surprise. So, um, you know, uh, somebody comes up to you and they say, uh, they, they, they're like, you know, how could you have, um, you know, hit my girlfriend? <laughs> like, you know, you're like, oh my gosh. And you're like, well, bing mayo, uh, or, or even better. Well, bing need a new So I don't even know your girlfriend. That's got that tone of like, you know, you are assuming that I rinsure her. Not only her that I did that, but that I, hitter but it's like well being so like it's sort of getting across that like you're running under an assumption that is not true and i'm going to say that um there's probably some better examples i can think of for example um you, you you're perhaps um you you meet someone 
oh, here, here's an example. A lot of people in Sichuan will assume that because I'm not from Sichuan that I don't like um, spicy food. This is actually a, a callback to pronunciation mastery. So I might say, 我并不怕辣。我并不怕辣. And so you put 并 before 不. Well, in this case, 不 because of the tone change, but 我并不怕辣. And the put by putting "bing," I'm essentially saying that it might be a surprise to you to discover that I am not afraid of spicy food. So, 我不怕辣, um is a simple phrase. It just means I am not afraid of spicy food, or I don't mind eating spicy food. Obviously, "pa" is literally afraid of, but it's just how they express the idea of like, are you afraid? Do you like spicy, or do you not like spicy? Are you afraid of it or not, right? Uh, and so if I say, 我并不怕辣, I'm acknowledging that from their perspective, they think that, I don't know, like, because I'm not from Sichuan, I won't like spicy food. And um, I've certainly seen cultures in the world that tend to not like spicy food. Every person I've ever met from Spain was not a big fan, it just happens to be. I'm sure there are Spanish people who uh, like spicy food, but just happen to be that in China, I've met several people from Spain who are like, no, I don't like spicy food at all. Um, but of course, I love spicy food. I've been eating, eating it, you know, since I was a young kid. So since I know that their expectation is that I won't like it, uh, or that I'm afraid of it, that I'm pa la, I say, well, bing bu pa la. So that is an example where you'd use it to uh, uh, negate someone's expectations. That's a good way to think of it. You negate their expectations. And then the kind of other way is that, you know, 并且 can be used to, uh, to, to connect two verbs directly, but sometimes it's two verb phrases. So it's just, instead of just, um, the original one I put forward was 我赞同并支持中国的立场, which means I agree with and support China's position. Um, but I might say, when you add it as a part of a verb phrase, it has more of the feeling of like moreover, like, and and to say more, like, so for example, um, 我赞同中国在中东的立场. So that's, that's um, I agree with China's uh, position on the Middle East. 并且我支持 Moreover, I support their strategy. I mean, I'm just making this stuff up, but the point is that it's a verb phrase followed by essentially meaning moreover, and then expressing more about the general topic to kind of further your point. Furthermore, you know, so it's got that sense to it. So hopefully that's helpful to William. Brennan Pimpinella on Guanxin and Context. Good to hear from Brennan. He did a case study with him a while back. I'm confused with the duplicated Guanxin in this sentence. 你不要只关心自己,你也应该关心关心别人. Since Guanxin means care in this sentence, does adding a second Guanxin convey the word also? So, no, um, so I bet that Brennan would understand the difference between can, which means to look, and can can is the casual nature of kankan, and that it's for a moment, kind of. It's kind of expressing uh, for a little bit. So when this person is saying, 你也应该关心关心别人, 
they're basically saying like, you should also care a bit about other people. Like, you know, I'm not like, they're kind of expressing, I'm not saying like, you should only care about other people. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, that, uh, you should like, it should be such a huge thing, but you know, put some effort into it. Like, right. Like look for a moment. Right. It's like kind of like do it a little bit, care a little bit about other people. Right. Which in this context is actually a kind of more insulting in a way, because they're sort of like saying, you know, even a little bit would be better than what you're doing. Right. So it's just a matter of when you tend to, uh, duplicate verbs, that's what happens. Next we have Kate Gans on Xiao in context. What if in the first sentence you wanted to say the size of a horse is bigger than a large person? Would it be ma de da xiao bi da ren da? Or ma da da xiao bi ren da da. Right, so she's kind of trying to get across the idea of like, what if you had not just that a horse is bigger than a person, but a horse is even bigger than a large person. And so it can't be either of these two sentences for the simple reason that da ren, it means uh, adults. Because in Chinese, uh, you the the making distinctions, especially comparisons between age, they don't use uh, lao and nian xing in that way. They, they use da and xiao. So if I say, wo bi ni da, that means I'm older than you. It does not mean I'm bigger than you, which can be confusing, but all you have to do is specify a bit more. So um, in this case, there is a specification, which is Ma the da xiao. So by saying ma the da xiao, you know that we're not talking about age because da xiao means size. So it's saying we're it, really the subject is uh, size. And so wh whose size? The horse's size. So we've established that. But really, what this sentence means is that the first one, ma the da xiao, bi da ren da, is the size of a horse is bigger than an adult. Right, but what she wants to say is a large person, right? So the way you could say this probably would be like Ma the Da Xiao Bi Da But I still wouldn't just end with Da. So let's take that again. Ma the Da Xiao Bi Da. Now why did I add Hayao Da? Or, or you just say hai da because you're trying to get across that even a large person still is not as big right or your um, uh, horse is even bigger than a large person right because when you're talking about two large things and your point is to try to get across that the uh the horse is you know the the that the thing that you're making the point about is maybe contrary to expectations even bigger then that is why you would use the high or the high yao so ma da da xiao bi shen ti hen da de ren hayao da and that would be a way to get across that idea and you need to establish shen ti hen da by saying shen ti hen da de ren then you're making it clear you're not talking about an adult you're talking about a person whose body is big and that's what's so nice about Chinese. All you got to do is just add more descriptors and you're correct. Now, with anything like this, there may be uh, 
a slightly more efficient or slightly different way to say this. I'm sure there are different ways to say it that I could even think of, but that's the way you want to think. You want to go, well, wait a second. What am I comparing here? I'm comparing a horse to a large person. Well, how do I express a large person? Well, you could say, uh, that would be fine. You could just also say, that would be the simplest way. Um, but you would then, you could also say, right? So that makes a lot of sense there. Because uh, you're getting it clear that even the biggest people are still not as big as a horse. Um, which, unfortunately, I'm American, so I know that that sentence is not true. But, yeah. <laughs> so, this is uh, how you want to think. You want to think, what am I actually saying? I'm saying this person is big. What is big about them? It's their body that's big. So, that's why you can say, But if you say, Then you're not saying old in that case. You're saying big. Uh, by saying versus just by saying you're saying adult or even like lord depending on the situation now we'll move into our movie scene shares so these are the full mnemonic scenes that cover the actor set props scripts and special effects to remember a character aka the henzi movie method first we have rick santos on make a movie for koi so Kuei, this is a very interesting character. And so it basically means like to suffer loss or lose something. It, it's a loss. It depends on kind of the it sort of follows around from these different concepts. The KU actor is outside the entrance of the EI set. Kuei, the Superman logo, aka the prop for the bottom. It kind of just, yeah, it looks like the Superman logo. All right. So the KU actor heard a crash just outside the entrance of the EI set. He saw a drone blade, which is the top component, of Krypton that was hovering over Superman. Superman was kept immobilized on the ground. Obviously, he had a deficiency in energy due to Krypton. The KU actor hurriedly drove the drone away before Superman could lose more energy. Luckily, which is a word that means like luckily, which is cool, for Superman... KU actor was quick enough before the drone could sap him out completely. Clear, super obvious. I love how Rick has been getting into this habit of trying to integrate some of the unlocked vocabulary as well to see if there's a way to get that in there. Great stuff. It's just such a strong way to get started with a new character. Hank Elliott on Make a Movie for Toll. Keyword is together. The actor is Tom Cruise. The set is his gym. The room is the gym floor with all the equipment in the third tone. That makes sense. Props are silk dress and an electrocuted baby. Nice. So Tom Cruise runs onto the gym floor wearing a sexy silk dress and carrying a recently electrocuted baby. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> he desperately shouts to all the gym bros and gals who are sweating and grunting in their own socially distanced places. The gym bros saw the silk dress and began looking the other way when suddenly a gym gal screeches that there is an electrocuted baby. <laughs> ah. <laughs> then together, all the gym bros and gym gals worked as a team to save the baby's life together. I love it. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean that's such a wild scene, and the the teamwork that they have to do at the end works to works well. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that Tom Cruise would be in this situation or that he would be at a gym. I think that is just about perfect. Excellent, Hank. Hank Elliott on make a movie for cheap. The key word is neat and even, which by the way, one of the most important words of this is jung chi. So jung chi is like the um, suppose you had a bunch of stuff strewn about. And it's not specifically like cleaning up your room or something, but it's like kind of like put it together and just keep it, make it orderly, neat and tidy. Uh, like my, my drumsticks occasionally will get a little bit all over the place in here. And so I'll just uh, kind of them real quick so that they're all in the same bag and all that. Okay. Neat and even is the keyword. Actor, Maggie Q. Set, childhood home, room, kitchen. Props, cultured person, when a fighting staff and a sword. So the cultured person that he has is John Hausman from The Paper Chase. Okay. Maggie Q walks into the kitchen of my childhood home to confront John Hausman and challenge him to battle. John, in his stuck-up, classy accent, asks if he can use the sword and she uses the staff so that the battle will be fair and even. Maggie agrees and instantly defeats John since his sedentary life is no match to her athleticism. The battle was actually quite uneven. Okay, nice. And then I think, so she, let's see here. So she uses the staff. Maybe she uses the sword instead and he uses the staff. And then the fight is uneven, but she cuts him up into little pieces. It doesn't have to be gory. It can be, you know, claymation style or whatever. Uh, and they're very evenly and nice and neatly distributed, showing her victory. So that could be a way to even get the neat side of it set up. Hank Elliott on Make a Movie for Tsiung, which means clear. His actor is Maggie Q. The set is the Tolland Public Safety Complex. Uh, the ENG equals engine equals firehouse. Okay, sure. So we have Tsiung covered there. This is kind of a twist on the usually hands of movie method. So let's see what... Hanks comes up with here. He says, prop, Tsiung questions in which the microphone stand has been replaced by a fountain. Okay. Maggie Q does a television advertisement in which she states that sometimes questions are much clearer in the front yard than they are in the kitchen because microphones don't always work and the fountain in the yard washes them clear. Okay. So, He's making a connection to the previous characters that use the right side component of this one, which could include, um, you know, Qiong uh, with water component is first tone, Qiong with the sun component is second tone, and Qiong with the uh, uh, with the megaphone component is third tone, and also Qiong with the heart emotion component is second tone as well. So I think what he's going for here is the um, the connections between those. I like that. I mean, that's pretty cool. It's creative. Next, we have Nick Sims on Make a Movie for Jue, uh, which means to feel. Kakashi, J-U, is in the cafe at Barton, E, scratching his head vigorously because something is picking at him. He grabs his magnifying glass, which is the bottom component, takes off his beanie, the middle component, and takes a closer look. He finds a fake eyelash top component in his beanie. This is what made his head feel so bad. Nice. Yeah, sure. I mean, because, of course, you're thinking about a feeling here. It's a direct sensation. Um, and so 
you can actually imagine a sensation. You can visualize a sensation mnemonically, so that works perfectly. Nice. Hank Elliott on Make a Movie for Joe, which means alcohol. The actor, my niece Jessica, set. Sandusfield Ambulance Meeting Room. Nice. The props are handheld fountain and a bottle of Baijiu. Jessica is in the meeting room of Sandusfield Ambulance, quickly trying to water down all the bottles of Baijiu with her handheld fountain. She is quite religious and totally against drinking, so she was quite surprised when she tasted her work only to find the bottles were even stronger in alcohol than before. <laughs> Baijiu does... <laughs> That's kind of good because you can almost imagine that Baijo could withstand the fountain because it's just so potent. So I like that. That's that's good. Hank Elliott on Make a Movie for Xiong, which means wake up. Also, it kind of means to sober up or sober. Qing uh, Xiong is sober. So that's kind of a, you know, a good little way to connect waking up and sobriety. Wake up. Xena Warrior Princess is in the meeting room of the firehouse trying to get her baby to go to sleep. But because it's broad daylight and the sunshine is too bright, she decides to give the baby some baijiu. <laughs> she then hums the following haiku to her baby. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you. yeah, that's that's pretty good. 你喝一点白酒 would be a better way. 请喝一点白酒 would be a little bit better. You wouldn't say uh, 一点 after um, the, the 白酒, but yeah. 请喝一点白酒所以你不行 See, this is okay. You would say 你不醒来你不会醒来 uh, would mean you won't wake up, but of course you're trying to make it a haiku, a haiku, trying to keep it to five characters, so that's okay. I know that three lines aren't really totally right. They are poetry, not sentences. <laughs> yeah, exactly, Hank. You're exactly right. And well done in the scene. I love it. And that covers this week's Mandarin Blueprint podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we'll see you next week.